what a wonderful experience for me to discover that the clarity that I felt in my mind, I could not properly convey to other people. And that so much of my success of the future would be contingent upon my ability to learn how to translate what I thought I understood in my mind so that other people could understand it in their minds and that I could learn how other people understood it so I could improve what I thought in my mind. And the New Venture Challenge offered me the very first time in my entire life I had been in a system to help me improve. Hello, and welcome to the Polsky Center's Where Are They Now podcast. I'm Colin Keeley, and we catch up with founders from Chicago Boost's New Venture Challenge on this show. Join us as we dive into their entrepreneurial journeys and get a look at the stories and struggles behind their success. This week, we have Brian Johnson interviewed by Star Marcello. Brian is one of the most fascinating and unique entrepreneurs working today. While at Booth, Brian founded Payment Processor Braintree, which bought Venmo for $26 million back in 2012, and then sold for $800 million a year later to eBay. Now Brian is the founder and CEO of Kernel, a company developing advanced neural interfaces. Star Marcello is the deputy dean for MBA programs at Chicago Booth. Before the dean's office, Star was the executive director of the Polsky Center. Without further ado, here's Brian Johnson and Star Marcello. All right, let's get started. So maybe I can ask you just some softball questions just to help us get to know you a little bit better. Why don't you tell us a little bit just about your background? Where did you grow up? What was that like? Where's Brian from? Oftentimes, the, the way someone explains where they're from and how they grew up says more about them than the actual circumstances in which they grew up and where they're from. And I'm aware of that, that as I'm contemplating this question in the perspective of who I am now. But through my recollection, I, I grew up in a small town in Utah. My grandfather had several horses and we farmed hay, alfalfa and corn. And we stayed up all night in irrigation. We, we built cabins up in the mountains and we uh, did big bonfires and cooked hot dogs. So I really spent most of my time outdoors building tree, ho- tree houses. And my grandfather was perhaps the most significant influence in my life because uh, my parents had divorced when I was young. And he stepped in and spent a lot of time with me. He had grown up in the Depression and had a certain way of understanding the world, which translated into hard work and persistence. And so I guess I look back that I grew up in a, a small town, was outdoors, and was with a man that valued hard work and industriousness overall and, and honesty and, and just being a good person. I think those are probably the things that carried over most in my life uh, than other details of my upbringing. That's incredible. I actually never knew that about your background and all the work that you did outdoors and your relationship with your grandfather. It sounds like he was very influential. So you probably more than perhaps anyone I've worked with over the past 16 years here at the school have been entrepreneurial perhaps in everything that you've done, your approach to life, what I know of it. 
I'm wondering, just in your background, whether it was experiences you had with your grandfather growing up, what was your first exposure to something like entrepreneurship? When I was eight years old, seven years old, I started waking up at around 5.30 in the morning every day to take my dog out in the field. And I had a BB gun and I loved to shoot targets and play around. And it was my favorite part of the day because it was just my dog and me. And we could traverse what seemed to me at the time like unlimited terrain of trees and trails and animals and little crevices. And it was this feeling of openness that we could go and do and be anything that caught my imagination. And as I grew older and I became more familiar with school and I encountered a more closed ecosystem, there were rules. You had to be there at a certain time and you could say certain things and do certain things to certain people and sit in a certain place and had to expose information in a certain structured way. And I remember feeling this repulsion towards school as it contrasted to my morning routines with my dog of this openness of endless possibility as we explored what is, you know, it's now, I think I look at it as a pretty small area, but at the time it just felt endless. And I would say that the things I enjoy doing the most have a space that feels endless, that I enjoy the process of exploring and building and discovering more than anything. When you were taking these walks with your dog and spending time outdoors with your grandfather, did you think this is what I want for my future? This is the type of lifestyle, the being around nature or having the openness in your life? Or did you think this is the beginning? There's something else awaiting me. Your question resonates deeply because this has actually been the, the foremost thing on my mind lately is I've been thinking back to my childhood. And as a child, I was in the moment. And when I was out in the field, there was nothing more important to me than being with my dog in that moment, shooting at that target or chasing down that animal. I didn't have in the back of my mind that I needed to plan for some future thing in life. And now, I think while these circumstances are similar in terms of the open space I get to explore with the things I'm doing, my mind is entirely in the future. I'm almost never in the present. I'm contemplating what existence is going to be like in the year 2,500. I'm wondering in what ways those intelligences, in whatever form they are, will look back at me and see me as primitive as I see Homo erectus. And I wonder how I sharpen my awareness of myself in this moment. And there's pros and cons to that. There's, I think there's a lot more positive neurotransmitters that happen in being in the moment of just being blinded to nothing else matters except for this thing. And I have no other word that worries. Whereas when I'm thinking about the future and planning out all the things I have as a, an adult, uh, it maybe feels a bit more stressful and there's a few th more things to juggle. And especially when you're thinking about timescales and for some reason, I don't know why I feel responsible for the year 2,500. 
it's not a, I don't have a passive relationship or an unattached relationship. I feel deeply connected to the future state of intelligence. And it's not like anyone asked me to do this. It's not like they're asking me to do it, right? It's not, it's not like I'm invited to the party. <laughs> so it's like, I've just raised my hand and said, I'm inviting myself to the party. And so I, I don't even know if I'm going to be valuable in this exercise. So it's kind of a weird situation to try to reconcile that I'm doing something that may or may not be welcome and that may or may not be helpful, but for some reason I'm drawn to it and I just can't seem to put my mind to other things. This might not be an easy question to answer, and perhaps there are pieces of this we can get to along the journey of our conversation, but how did you get from here to there, from being ever-present in the moment to being largely preoccupied by the future? Growing up in, in this small town, it was deeply religious. Literally every single person I knew, except for my father, was a member of the, the religion. And so I, I like to draw the analogy that I feel like I grew up in a video game where the rules of the game were all mapped out. There were uh, points to be made. There was a scoreboard. Everybody knew what behaviors scored points, which things deducted points. People knew how you got kicked out of the game. The whole thing was structured. And therefore, it eliminated all need to ask question, questions around what are the rules. And as I matured and eventually left the church, then the omnipresent question in my mind has been, what game is really going on? And so I playfully say that my reason for what I find to be my, my meaning in life is I want to figure out what is really going on. Like really, really, why does something exist versus nothing at all? And how can it be the case that time and space is potentially infinite? And how can it be all the questions? And I don't expect that I'm going to find these answers. Uh, I think that we've been making good progress, and of course, in in learning more and more about the our reality. At the same time, I'm not certain what ratio it is. I mean, do we know? 99% of what there is to know about reality, or are we at 0.0001% and we're just the beginning of the learning curve? And so we just have no way of knowing. But I suppose this question really is the, the dominant one on my mind. And so what I care about doing is that we, as a society, that we are healthy and well, and we build a beautiful existence so that we can play this game trying to figure out what is really going on. And everyone else can play their own games. But Do you find that you have a strong community of people who are obsessed with answering these questions about the future for the benefit of humanity as well? I'm just, I'm sort of asking this because so many people focus so much on what's directly in front of them and may not have the space or the attention or the mindfulness or the knowledge to think about what's coming in 2050. What should we be doing now? How have you found the community that 
is invested as deeply as you are in answering those questions about the future? Yeah, I think maybe some of the most meaningful relationships that I've developed have been people who are no longer living in reading what they wrote. And I find it immensely enjoyable to, I mean, we, get, we of course get the advantage of we can read about someone's entire life in a matter of a week or two weeks or three weeks, uh, the synthesis of their thoughts. Now, maybe we don't get all the iterations and maybe there's details that we don't get, but we get the gist of it in many cases of a person's biography or their writings and to watch their path of learning. And so it's almost like you get this compressed version of someone's obtainment of wisdom. And that's fun because then I can contrast it with myself and say, what could I potentially learn from this person that I may never learn on my own uh, or that it would take me 25 years to discover on my own through all this trial and error? And then I'd say that there, I have several close friends who each one has their own disposition about the future and what they care about and why. But I'd say there's several deep connections I've formed with people that do maintain similar sentiments. And I think the most enjoyable ones are the ones where we just laugh at the ridiculousness of everything that we've achieved. We've, we've reached a certain state where we just don't take things seriously anymore, ourselves included, and that there's this comic relief to the entire thing. I think at the end, I'll ask you for some of the book recommendations, because I am guessing listeners will want to know what has inspired you. What have you read? But let's get back to your story and getting to the theme of this podcast with New Venture Challenge. Can you describe your decision to pursue business school? You shared that initially school was not was constraining, was in opposition to the freedom of being outdoors, controlling your own space. How did you end up applying to Chicago Booth? Growing up in my small town of Utah, I did not know or was exposed to an engineer until I was 22 years old of any sort, electrical, mechanical, computer. It was a community of blue collar, largely blue collar workers. There were some white collar scattered about, but engineering and science was not something I was exposed to. It was just, and it was again, largely based on, it was primarily a religious based community and character and other religious values were really at the forefront of what everyone practiced. It was less focused on secular. And, and it's, of course, it, it's, that's a complicated topic for me because in many ways, I'm deeply saddened that I didn't realize these things existed. And so I didn't have the ability to practice when I was young or get a computer when I was seven years old and play around. And so I feel like I really got introduced to the world, the real world, in my early 20s of thought and of engineering and of science. And at that point, I feel like I, I properly assessed myself 
I determined I just had this raw ability to just generally figure things out and be tenacious. But also, I wasn't scoring myself high saying that, well, I'm going to be likely to win a Nobel Prize and or, you know, I, I kind of knew where I was at in the world of my abilities. And so I thought, with what I do know and with what the skill sets I do have and deciding specifically not to go back to school and study for 10 years to acquire some specific skill set, I'm going to try to be resourceful and accumulate assets, money specifically, with the theory that when you have these assets that you can do things you, you could basically hire these specific skill sets that you yourself don't have. And so I was trying to solve that equation. So the skill sets I didn't have myself, plus being able to do things at a certain scale. And in the first few years of entrepreneurship, I built and I tried a few companies, some were successful, some were not, uh, but none meaningfully successful enough that it was a life changer. And so I really was at a point in my life where I wasn't sure what to do because thus far I hadn't stumbled into a hyper growth business or I hadn't been successful in my endeavors. And I evaluated going to law school and business school and law school because I thought, I know a lot of people who are successful, who are lawyers, or I'm sorry, who went to law school, but don't practice law, but I respect them immensely with their unique ability to think. And so I really, I I honed in on the skill set of thinking. And I, I was particularly drawn to people who had gone to law school. And so I, I took some practice tests of the LSAT and I scored atrociously. I don't think any school would have, would have accepted me, which is true with my ACT in high school. Uh, it was just awful. I would have done better by answering B on every answer. And then I looked at business school and I thought, if I take the GMAT, no business school is going to accept me for sure. And so I, I found Chicago Booth, the executive program, and, and saw that the admission standards were that, that, my, that I would be evaluated as a person based upon what I had done in life, what I had attempted to do. So I submitted my application and the administration there, for some reason, they decided to accept me. I think at the time they told me I was a lo- the youngest person to get accepted into the program. That's true. It was a life-changing moment uh, because from my vantage point of my little Utah state of mind to this metropolis of, of Chicago and the enor- and Chicago Booth as being one of the best business schools in the entire world, it was hard for me to reconcile how I could ever be qualified to be among that group, that I would be outmatched on every level. And so it was very difficult for me to reconcile how I possibly could have gotten accepted and how I would be among such an accomplished group of people. I'm curious, before we dive deeper into your experience at Booth, if you could have gone back in time and changed your situation, if you had had exposure to science and engineering, if you had had a computer when you were seven, what would you have done with that? Yeah, me answering this question again is probably more revealing of my psychology now than my psychology as a kid. <laughs> you know, I I probably would have tried to break out of the video game. That's where all my intuitions pointed is I wanted to find the boundaries. I wanted to knock yeah. them over and I wanted to find infinite expanse. Okay. 
we'll go we'll go back to your booth experience. So you're here at Booth. I would argue certainly a place where you belonged, a place for deep academic and intellectual thinking. You took advantage of the new venture challenge with your company Braintree. Tell us a little bit about where Braintree came from. I suppose as many of the best things in life, it was a mistake. And I was married. I had two children. I was pursuing another entrepreneurial endeavor that wasn't going very well. I needed income to pay my bills because I had a whole bunch of debt and nobody would hire me. I I could not get a job with anyone. And so I found a job posting to sell credit card processing on monster.com. And it was 100% commission uh, going door to door. And out of desperation, I took it. And it just required the process of walking into a business and trying to sell them something they already had. So you're trying to replace an existing product. And I discovered an industry that was broken. And so by accident, I found an opportunity to pursue. I'm just curious. You know, you said something just now that we hear a lot from entrepreneurs, which is no one would hire me or a traditional company. I wouldn't belong there. Why do you say that? It's the video game analogy. It's rules are set. The scoreboard is on the wall. Everyone knows what points, what scores points, what gets points taken away. Everyone knows fouls. And so it's a, it's a choice of what is your gameplay in life? Do you like to play within known structures and known games? Or do you like creating your own games? So with Braintree, you, I believe, had started the business before applying to take it through the new venture challenge. What did you gain from going through NVC? Up until that point, Braintree was a creation inside my mind. And it was the first time that I was required to articulate what that vision was. And then the supporting mechanics on how that vision would actually happen. In my first presentation, I discovered that disconnect when I explained what I thought was a clear understanding of Braintree and my vision. And Waverly Deutsch said something along the lines of, that was awful. (laughs) Just an absolutely awful presentation. And what a wonderful experience for me to discover that the clarity that I felt in my mind, I could not properly convey to other people. And that so much of my success of the future would be contingent upon my ability to learn how to translate what I thought I understood in my mind so that other people could understand it in their minds and that I could learn how other people understood it so I could improve what I thought in my mind. And the the New Venture Challenge offered me, it was the very first time in my entire life I had been in a system to help me improve. 
I'd never had a mentor. I wasn't surrounded by a strong community of entrepreneurs in in Utah when I was starting various companies. I didn't, you know, I wasn't in engineering groups when I was a kid. So I was really just winging it on my own. And to be around other people who had started successful companies, sold them, gone on to other things, to drop these tidbits of wisdom of like, hey, you may want to think about this. And then it required me to be a careful listener and scaffold that knowledge as fast as possible. So it was a breath of fresh air. Did you think as you were going through this highly competitive program that you would walk away winning the top prize, getting attention from the entrepreneurial community at Booth and in Chicago? No. It was interesting. I, I, I say no. There was one of the teams that year, their business model was a prediction market. And they did prediction polls of who they thought would win. And Braintree was in between first and second place on a fluctuating basis. I was surprised by that, that other people had the perception that we may have a chance at winning because my perception was not that at all. I thought that the other businesses people were talking about had more, they were just maybe more interesting businesses, uh, things that got people excited about the future, inventions, medical advances, et cetera. And I was talking about this really boring thing of moving money from one place to another. I wonder, looking back at that moment of winning the NVC that year, what did winning it mean to you? I think it was one of the first times that I felt like I had an additional element of social credibility. That before that, there was not much I could really point to on why people should take me seriously or why I would be considered to be a meaningful contributor on any project. I know, for example, in my study group in class, uh, my classmates were all much better at school than I was. In starting the payments business, it wasn't like I was this prodigy <laughs> of, of payments walking into the world. And so I just didn't really have any credibility. I had done a four-year degree, of course, but so many people do that, it's not necessarily a marker. And so I think that was the first time where what I perceived to be credible people in society voted with their confidence that they thought that this endeavor could be successful. And it was meaningful to me because I had never had that outside expression of confidence. So what happened after NVC? I will say often we hear from teams that go through the program that you can gain a lot of momentum while the program is happening. And certainly if you place highly or if you win, you have a big burst of momentum, credibility, potential interest from investors or others in the community. What happened after the NVC was over and you got to work on building Braintree? Two things happened specifically that set the course for Braintree. First is that Chuck Templeton, who was the co-founder of OpenTable, was 
early advisor to me, and he introduced me to his his team at OpenTable, who at the time, they were trying to solve a problem in storing credit card data from reservations. And they didn't want to deal with all the compliance issues of having to have credit card data on their server. And OpenTable said, look, if you can solve this for us, we will pay you uh, $1.4 million over three years, $30,000 a month, and we'll give you a $90,000 sign-up bonus. And that was enough for me to hire a team of three software engineers to build this payment product for them. And so instantaneously, we were profitable from day one. And I had a small team of engineers, and we built the foundation for this payment product. And then the second thing that happened is the the fastest growing company in America uh, that year on the Inc. 500 list came to us and they said, hey, we really want uh, these payment capabilities. We don't have them right now. And we need a company to do this for us. And we got the deal. (laughs) And somehow this, our teeny little company. And so in year one, I think revenue was going to top $1 million dollars net profit was going to be 500,000 and that gave me the the financial foundation to then start imagining how we could grow a lot faster and so i bootstrapped the company for for almost 5 years we were profitable i think almost every month and it was such a delight to be able to play i guess it was kind of like going outside of my dog it was like this this little world and we got to play every single day on building this little company and bringing about the best innovations that we could imagine. For example, we, we worked closely with Uber to build no, no payment transactions. It's like you, you get in a car, you leave a car, and there's no exchange of, you know, and we got to do innovations like that. And people just accept that as a norm in life. That wasn't then. And so we introduced this, you know, them with that, plus a whole bunch of other examples, we introduced new ways of how commerce was done. And so that was fun that we really got to play within the scaffolding of society. So it, I guess what happened is it, it transitioned from uh, a startup that could make some money that would be interesting to now we're playing this game of societal scaffolding of payments. And now, of course, Braintree is a part, is like literally part of society, the scaffolding of society. When you factor in Venmo as well, it's a significant element of society. And that is so joyous to think about that we built something that remains today, that is growing today, and that is part of what we all rely upon as we exist on this planet. Mm -hmm. I feel like we should go back to your reference to Venmo, perhaps one of the best acquisitions of all time. How did that happen? When I was presenting Braintree to in the business plan competition, I presented that the real money in payments, but PayPal was the only company making money in payments. And because they had people could fund their account with their checking account and not their credit card. And that would mean that PayPal could make 3% on the transaction by not paying the bank fees then everyone else was making a nickel or a dime or a penny or some small amount. And there would have been many people who had seen this, of course, and PayPal got their start by building their two-sided ecosystem with eBay. So they really got help in that two-sided getting consumers and also getting businesses. 
others to try to replicate what PayPal had done in building a two-sided marketplace at the same time. And that, of course, is very, very challenging. Uh, so many companies go to a two-sided marketplace business to die. And so in my business plan competition, in the plan, I said, we are going to, in the next four to five years, we're going to build one of the best customer bases in the whole world by being the best provider. And then when we have this maturity, we're going to acquire a consumer payments company and bring those two together. And of course, life never works out like you think this one did, uh, oddly. And so in that four years time, we our customers included GitHub and Airbnb and Uber. So we, we had some of the fastest growing companies in the world using our technology. And those same people who use those services, uh, Uber and Airbnb and GitHub, also use Zenmo. And so we had this up-and-coming group of people. And so it, it married this demographic. And so now it was, we were beating PayPal at acquiring the best businesses. We were beating PayPal at acquiring the best, uh, I guess, individuals that they were targeting on, on what they wanted. And we brought the two together. And it was incredibly powerful uh, how it all came together. And Venmo has done remarkably well uh, the founders deserve all the credit for coming up with such a counterintuitive idea of making what we consider to be a, a, a payment, something that should be secure and private and not seen by others to this open social conversation. They really were creative and wonderful in doing that. And we just happened to join forces at exactly the right time when they had reached a point of maturity in their ecosystem where they they needed to be with someone like Braintree. And our growth at Braintree also would be dramatically enhanced with adding Venmo. And so, yeah, it was a beautiful combination. I want to go back to something you said earlier and a theme perhaps with this acquisition of Venmo. You said after NVC, you had some early wins and you got some big sales where companies took a chance on Braintree as a small startup. Generally, that doesn't happen by accident. So I'm curious if you can share any of your reflections on what made you compelling selling what Braintree was offering. We try to teach things like entrepreneurial selling here at business school. How were you able to convince customers to take a chance on you? My first education on this was when I was first exposed to payments and doing the door-to-door sales for that company. And it was really a psychological question of, are you trustworthy? And after a few interactions with customers, that was very clear to me. And so I would walk into the business and they would see me dressed as a salesperson. They'd say like, please go away. I have things to do. You never wanted. <laughs> and I would pull a $100 bill out of my pocket and say, I will give you $100 for a few minutes of your time. I just, if you listen to what I have to say and you still want the $100, I'll give it to you. And then I would just lay bare the entire industry. Like, here's who the players are in, in credit card processing. Here's what they do. Here's what their statements look like. Here's how they're taking advantage of you. Here's how it, the whole thing is dishonest. 
I'll just reveal all the secrets and say, I don't play any of those games. What you can expect from me is clarity, uh, cleanness. And if you have a problem, I'm going to solve it for you very fast. So I'm just going to make this go away. And it resonated so deeply with people because they had learned properly to never trust anyone in the credit card sales industry. There were so many ways to get to take advantage of people. And it was so complex that you, the people, the salespeople could generate very high commissions by manipulating buyers. And it was just a thorn in these business owners' side that they had to deal with this constantly, like the next deal, which is going to get them. And so once I had a base of customers who trusted me, they just referred all their friends like, hey, for once and for all, you can solve this hairy problem of yours with this guy. And so I took some of those lessons and when I started building Braintree and we were building a software product, there was still a pretty big fundamental component of, can I trust you? And over time, the pitch of, of Braintree changed in terms of the features we could offer and our scalability and the number of countries and the currencies and all that kind of stuff. But initially, it was really, uh, do I trust these people and will they be here for me and uh, will they respond on time? And so I don't know exactly what the thought processes were of these initial companies. I think OpenTable probably trusted me in proxy because Chuck had referred me. So I was riding on his trust profile that he had built with those relationships. With others, it's probably accumulation of people who we referred them to, like OpenTable as a happy customer. But yeah, I think the characteristics probably switched, but a, a non-changing element that everyone's going to go through is people want to make good decisions about other people. And they're running algorithms at all times to assess whether they really think they can trust you or not, and whether you can deliver what you say you can, and whether you will be forthcoming with what you can or cannot deliver. And if you will be the one to willingly tell them when you've messed up, or when you can't deliver something you've said, or when you've overpromised. So there's just, we all know this from human relationships. We don't want to deal with people who are not going to behave in a way where they create expectations. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you another question about people and managing people. With Braintree, you built a super successful company. It involved you managing engineering teams without being an engineer yourself. This is going to be a theme for you moving forward in other entrepreneurial endeavors in your life. How were you able to create strong relationships, communicate on technical things that you might not have had as much depth of knowledge about? How were you able to manage teams like that successfully? I thought a lot about this because in getting into Braintree, I was in over my head. I was taking on a a software project that I myself couldn't code. I didn't know what the architecture was going to be. I didn't know how to hire software engineers. I didn't know how to verify the quality of the work product. And so I was blinded. And so and this is the same is true, of course, as you mentioned, you're alluding to with, with kernels, but just on orders of magnitude, greater difficulty. But with, I'd say two things. One is it's a process of chipping away at the problem. It's not solved in one go. And so it's creating these edges of knowledge So you are a reliable filter for accuracy. And what you're trying to do is sniff out inaccuracies or poor performance or discontinuities. 
And so I had to create an algorithm of filters to understand if I was working with a software engineer, did they know what they were talking about? And if they didn't, could I sniff it out? So there's that component. And then the second thing was alignment on what we were trying to do. So we had some language in common. And one of the goals that we had that everyone latched onto was this idea that our customers would write us love letters. And to capture the essence of the company in a small number of words, that that's, we are looking for someone to show up, encounter our API documentation or support infrastructure or product offering or website or whatever it is, whatever presence we have in the world, and to experience a biochemical reaction of pleasure, like that I trust this company, I like this company, I wish all companies would be like this company, whatever, their, whatever the outcome is, and that they would then report that to us. So they'd feel so compelled from the experience to tell us that we would get that active feedback. And so there's a different level of delighting somebody where they're passively delighted by the experience. And there's a, a certain level of delightment where the person says, I'm uncontrollably delighted and I have to tell you about it. And in establishing that with the team, that we will accept nothing less than an uncontrolled, delightful outcome. And that we want people to be emailing us and sending messages on social media about how much they love us, that that was our standard. And when you set your, your goals at that level, it does a lot of work for you, where if somebody can't deliver on that level, either in what they're programming or in the product they're managing or in the customer support they're offering, they get weeded out pretty quickly from the system. And so it just cumul accumulates on itself. And so it increases the first point I brought up, which is the algorithm of how do you properly deduce competence and alignment. And so I'd say those two things really, it was those two things constituted the algorithm that allowed me to learn very, very fast how to hire software engineers, how to properly work with an engineering team, and how to create a cohesive environment for that new kind of business that I'd never built before. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you think you did or maybe continue to still do with Kernel to have that two-way trust so that you trust the competency of the work that's being done, but also that the engineering team or technical team is trusting you? It's a funny relationship because in any human dynamic where one person knows more than the other person about a given thing, they're wondering, do you really get it? Like, do you understand your level of ignorance? Do you know how to poke around at your own ignorance? And do you know the limitations of decision-making while you're in ignorance? And when you're in that state, will we be able to have discussions where you're going to leverage my knowledge and my wisdom? And if the person can make those assessments and say, you know what, I'm better off because I'm with this person than I would be on my own. That's the key. And so it's really a symbiotic relationship, but it's hyper-tuned. And especially this has been true with Kernel, where with Braintree, I could be two or three layers deep in the software, understanding how to build a, a good software stack. At Kernel, it's down to photons and atoms and like the edge of physics. And 
it just has, it requires the dimensionality of awareness and of thoughtfulness that's just a diff, totally different league than where I was at at Braintree. And I don't think I ever could have been capable of starting Kernel without having first built Braintree. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's go back to what got us to Kernel, Braintree. When did you know it was time for an exit? There were so many things going on. I was basically, I, I knew that I had to restart life. I had been born into this video game of a reality through a religious context. I was exiting that reality. I had been in a marriage that was consummated in that reality that was also now had to be uh, moved past that. And then just me as a person, I, I had moved on. And of all these forces were coming together of like this explosion inside of me of like something new was happening. And Braintree had hit this point in our progress where we were, it was just up and to the right. We were growing incredibly fast. The addition of Venmo only made it go faster. And it was very clear to me that we were going to either IPO or get acquired. And in either one of those scenarios, a typical deal would require me to stay for four years. And at the time, I was 33 years old. And my aspiration you know, for the longest time was, again, to, to try to contribute something meaningful to intelligent life on this earth right, over the span of hundreds or even thousands of years. So that if I, if I did something of value today, it would be valued in a few hundred years or whatever, some, some future time point. Like it, would, it would reach that potential value threshold. And payments wasn't going to do that didn't have the characteristics of it. And so I needed to find it. But that, from my 33-year-old vantage point, seemed impossibly hard. How in the world do you figure that out? Especially when you are looking, and when I'm looking at myself in the mirror and saying, I honestly don't really have anything special about me. Like, I, like, like literally, I'm, I'm a resourceful guy. I can solve problems. I can get along with others. But it's not like I'm the prodigy engineer building this thing. And so it's the problem was that I was facing was not that it's, I just myself can't invent this given thing, but I have to figure out this larger system question. And uh, more importantly, doing something is going to require building that thing for a few decades. It's not going to happen in three years. It's not going to happen in 10. It's a 30, 40, 50 year thing. And if I'm 33 now, I need to, fe- I need to spend a few years to figure out what in the world I'm going to do. And then I need 30 or 40 years of wonderful health to really go at it. And so the only thing on my mind was, how do I get working on this next project as fast as possible? And then how can I harvest whatever is going to be at Braintree? Because I knew at that point it was going to be big. uh, And whatever the outcome was, it was going to be big enough to fund this next thing, at least to get me started. And so those were the pieces of the puzzle I was trying to piece together. And so it, it was a lot. It's like, how do you build New Brian? How do you, in my marriage, with my kids, with my religion, with my existential reality, with this new thing, my entire existence had to be reconstructed in that moment. It's so rare that someone changes 
so many significant aspects of their life at one point in time to say, I intentionally need to create the opportunity for me to pursue the thing that I feel compelled to pursue as my life's mission. How were you able to make those decisions, make the changes that need needed to be made and set yourself on this new course for the work that was imperative for you to do? In these moments as a human, the tendency is to spin up a hero story, right? Like that would be the temptation and, and, and walk through, identify the characteristics that I find admirable about myself and, and make things up that are probably embellished from the reality. Uh, but I think the more relevant answer is in something pretty mundane where in that time period of things I was going through, I would overeat every night. I would wake up in the morning, I would work out and I would listen to Eminem and I would just absolutely destroy myself. And I would have a wonderful breakfast all day long. I'd have a, you know, a salad for lunch. I would be disciplined all day long. And then nighttime would come and I just couldn't stop myself from overeating. And then I would just feel absolutely awful about myself because I felt 30, 40, 50 pounds overweight my pants would be tight. I would just find it unbearable to wear it. I might, I'd have to take out one more belt loop. You know, just, it was just devastating to me psychologically. And one day I had this idea to fire Brian. Like the Brian who occupied my conscious mind from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m., he was an unreliable partner in the construction of Brian. And the firing was he no longer has authority to eat food. Literally, he cannot eat food. He has no authority. And so any food I want to eat during the day has to be before that 5 p.m. time period. And I did that and it changed my life. And there were, I probably made, I probably cheated something like 40 times, you know, but then I finally got to a point where I was like, where I would cheat and I would say, you know what, I'm going to cheat, but I know within 30 seconds of cheating, I'm going to feel awful about myself. I'm going to regret it so badly. And I'm going to just deal with the pain all night long and all tomorrow. And so I think to answer your question of when all those things were changing, I was trying to go play this psychological game with myself where I was acknowledging that I am not one person. I am thousands of different Brian's and these different Brian's manifest themselves according to my sleep the night before what I've eaten five minutes before my environment, the people I'm around, I vary according to all these things. And I created almost a detached relationship with myself where I could look at myself and say, you know what? Um, existential threat, Brian, like you're not very fun to be around. And I don't know if I want you in my life anymore. And so I started playing these games with myself of trying to trim up the versions of my conscious experience and unconscious experience that I really wanted to be part of my life. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess I, maybe I suppose that was like a survival move because going through that much change in such a short period of time did, in fact, place uh, a tremendous amount of psychological distress. 
So how did you get from the point of, I know the change that I want to make in the world. I know how I want to contribute to the future of humanity, to understanding how to harness the talent or time and energy, the space to actually address it in a certain way. It was such a fun game. It was about a two-year time period. And I initially thought the richest source of information would be other people's brains, that I could piggyback on top of their thought processes and not have to walk down the same ones myself. And so I, I commenced this process where I would identify the most ambitious and aspirational people I could identify. And then I would approach them and ask them a series of questions. What are you doing in the world? Why are you doing it? What are your core assumptions? What other alternatives did you consider? If you were to do something again, what else would you do? I was trying to just unpack their entire assumption stack of what they were doing and why. And it gave me you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of trails to follow. And then I started bringing those people together in dinners. And I would pose questions such as, let's imagine we are in the year 2050 and we look around the world and we say, huh, we did a pretty good job. What did we focus on in the year 2017 or 2016 that allowed us to feel pretty good about where we're at as a species in 2050? And I got some discussions and everyone's comments, of course, would spark other discussions. And after doing this for two years, I realized that there was, there was one thing that it seemed like that no one was really focused on in a concerted way. And I was brought back to Darwin in terms of how evolution has been a scaffolding form of intelligence. It just step-by-step step improves the system's abilities in its own algorithm. And if you look at how society is improving around us, we approach engineering progress in science and in technology and in our institutions. We're making really wonderful progress. If you look at that, like for example, how much progress have we made in science and technology over the past couple hundred years? Well, the 1300s with the 14th century with the bubonic plague, the scientific response was prayer circles. And this time around, we sequenced the genome and we have a mRNA vaccine designed in two days and we have clinical studies going on. This is very different. And so that, that's an, an example of compounded progress where you're, you're scaffolding these gains. And the one thing that is not being systematically scaffolded is human thought. It is not yet a, a, an engineering discipline, and that's because we can't measure it. So if you think about what you can measure, if you look at a nutrition label on food, you can make good decisions on calories and fat and, and carbohydrates, et cetera. If you want to assess the health of your heart, you have plaque levels and, and HRV and heart rate, and you have EKGs you can do. So you can acquire data and the measurement, your ability to measure informs intervention protocols. And the more measurement you have, the better your, your intervention protocols can become. And so the only thing that's really outside of the formal scaffolding of existence of our, of our world here on earth is our mind, our thoughts, our emotions and our thoughts. And so I hypothesize that if technology could be built to measure the mind and quantify it like we can other streams of data, you formally enter 
bring cognition to the formal discipline of engineering. And the humans now, we are the architects of intelligence. We architect science and technology and our institutions. We're building artificial intelligence, and that's increasingly becoming kind of a two-way street and, and like who's building whom. But humans right now are in the driver's seat. Well, yeah, I guess literally soon, maybe not be. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but basically, if, if you imagine what is the future of human existence, then a fundamental turning point in intelligent life is going to be when our cognition becomes engineerable. And that's what I wanted to accomplish. And I couldn't find anyone in the world who was doing it. There were people doing work on brain interfaces, but for the purposes potentially of treating this disease and, and, and that dysfunction, but no one for the systematic engineering of intelligence. And that was the, the conclusion on, on kernel, which is this is what has the potential of making a meaningful contribution in hundreds of years as a turning point for uh, how humans. And if you, I guess the last thought on this is if it, all the other things people were ta- talking about with me, like their you know, climate change and pandemics and political division and all the, th- all the hot topics, those all exist downstream from the brain. So the observation was everyone's just one or two clicks down. Let's go back to the source because all things are in this area of focus. I think many aspects of your story are going to inspire those who are listening to this podcast. Can you tell us more about these two years of exploration? You reached out to those you admire most to ask them a series of questions, to gather them around a table and have discussions. Why did they give you the time of day? What do humans like more than to have others interested in their opinions? It's true. I think the other thing that may be helpful for people to hear, with Colonel, entering uncharted territory, both with the science of what you were hoping to accomplish, also just based on your own background. And as an entrepreneur, starting a company like Colonel is very different than starting a company like Braintree or like ventures you had done prior to that. What was the most difficult challenge you faced in starting this company? Being me. You know, like basically on the surface, if you stack up what would reasonably be qualifications to start something like this, you know, I maybe had one money. (laughs) Um, I think that if there's one, if there's one virtue that I brought to starting this, it was that I was naive. And I remember in particular, it was in August and we had, this was a, a year into starting Colonel. We had brought one of the world's foremost neurosurgeons into Colonel to help us. We were building invasive technology at the time. And I had been looking everywhere for technology. I wanted to find what was the entry point? What could you build? What was even possible to build? And that I'd spoken to so many people trying to piece that together in this comprehensive survey. And we were finished with the day's discussion. We'd spent three years together and we talked about all the mechanical and electrical and 
regulatory components of this implantable device we were building. And then the very end, we were just having this, this small talk. And he said, you know, in my experience being in this industry for almost 40 years now, every 15 to 20 years, a new technology comes along that changes everything. The technology we have now is at the end of its maturity curve. The new technology is already here. We just can't see it. And my jaw dropped. One of the most significant moments of my entire life. And I went back to my team and I said, I don't think we have investigated the optionality with enough thoroughness. There may be a better path that is more aligned with this time and place of brain interfaces. And we, we did that. And it, within a few months' time, within four months, we transitioned the entire company to a new technology focus, which was, of course, also equally difficult because nothing's harder than that because you build relationships with people and you make commitments and you set expectations. Ultimately, a startup thrives and dies according to its ability to respond to information in real time. That's the only thing that matters is the responsiveness to the intelligent system. And, uh, but yeah, that, that's what led to where we're at today. And we don't sincerely know the, uh, really what we've built yet. We've built the technology out in front of, uh, what even the experts know can be done with it. And so, uh, we'll find out in the coming years. Uh, this is kernel is atypical in that there wasn't just a product sitting on the shelf and we said, Hey, we can build a better version of that. And we can, uh, scale it out and investors will understand the story. We said, we have no idea if something's here. We're going to explore. If we find it, we hope we can build it. And if we do build it, we're not quite sure what it's going to do, but we hope it can do a lot. And so there's so many hops in there. And I think it's, you know, the kernel would not exist if I, if I couldn't have funded it myself. And kernel barely existed in raising a round of capital. Uh, I spoke to 228 investors. Uh, to raise our our first outside round of capital, one person said yes, and I understand why. It's it's a difficult one to get your head around. So this is not a criticism of investors. This is just that this is the game we're playing. But yeah, yeah, I think the next two or three years is going to be extraordinarily exciting uh, because it's like Christmas. We get to find out what's in the box, and yeah, it's here. Is it the next two to three years? Is it the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Yeah, it's such a good question. And that's entirely where my, my mind has been at for the past few months. And so the algorithm I've been trying to solve is a new technology finds its utility in the market over a certain duration of time, as you mentioned. And so if you say, for example, that when Fitbit was built, I'm not sure when they started, but let's just call it 10 years ago. And you just would have said, you know, give me a rough estimate. What do you think Fitbit's worth? You put this technology on the wrist, you track steps, and eventually you're going to get to these other measurements. The answer ended up being about two and a half billion, which is what Google paid for them. And they, they didn't have necessarily additional ecosystem value to build on top of the technology. They didn't necessarily get all that much more viable with additional data streams. 
uh, kernel technology has all those attributes. Kernel technology is much more like a smartphone where people will be able to build on top of the ecosystem with every additional uh, data stream, our technology is more valuable. So there's a different game of, of value creation. So basically what I find interesting about this is in the process of hiring people, in the, in the process of speaking to investors, people are trying to assess whether they should get involved in whether, whatever activity they're involved with. And so whether it's investing money or joining the company. And the default thought process that almost everyone has is what is the killer app? And behind that statement is an assumption that human intuition is the source of intelligence that should be generating the conclusion. The difficulty of, uh, is you're dealing with this wildly complex technology and you're looking at the most complicated system of intelligence in the universe. And so what is a killer app is a question that falls short uh, of being able to address it. And so what I think it, the, the correct answer is you want to eliminate human intuition. What you really want to enable is a random number generator for value creation. And so if you look at it from a mathematical formula, then you would just simply say, the variables in that formula include how many devices are in the world, how many experiments are being done with how many participants, how many mistakes can you get into the system? Because you want people to make mistakes. Like when the Pfizer vaccine went out to be distributed and people made a mistake of doing half the dose, they found out it was more effective than the dose Pfizer had prescribed. So you want mistake creation in your system of discovery. And so now the team and I worked very hard every time we are evaluating how to build something. If our intuitions creep in and any of us starts expressing an opinion of, I think this because we stop. You know, say human intuition is not welcome to this conversation. Random number generators are. So if you have a, an idea on how to create this algorithm, or this mathematical function of how this technology creates value. So it's a very different mindset and it takes some acclimation to think about that because it's just not how people normally approach product market fit. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Um, are you optimistic about the future of humanity, the dream for 2050? I mean, the way I, I interpret that question is, am I anticipating experience biochemical interactions in my brain that produce positive states of being in the future is what I hear you saying. <laughs> yes. And what I know as a human is that I am an extremely bad uh, predictor of what a future Brian may or may not like and what that future Brian may or may not find satisfying. And so I think that never in the history of the human race, never, never in the history of intelligent life on earth has a generation of people been able to look out over their lifetimes and conclude there is a possibility that the fundamentals of their conscious existence may be altered beyond their ability to comprehend. That we would literally transform ourselves into something totally unrecognizable from what we are today. No one else has ever looked at that contemplation. And so I would again express extreme reluctance 
to model anything, any future state based upon my proclivities today upon the future. Mm-hmm. I have just a couple more questions for you. Just looking back now from where you are with Colonel, with your thoughts about the future, with how you're spending your day with the Brian that you fired. If you could go back to yourself walking the dog as a child, maybe not even then aware of the video game that you were in or that you wanted to break out of, what would you tell yourself? And what you're doing now sounds a lot like you've fulfilled the dream that you intended to from an early age. Is that true? First, the the thing I would say to that, Brian, would be things are going to become more painful than you can imagine. Excruciating to a degree that it's going to be very tempting to conclude it's not worth carrying on. And then I would say, despite the irresistible urge, carry on because it's worth it. Hmm. I think my last question for you is, there's a lot of mythology around the founder story, the hero story, the hero story of entrepreneurship, particularly for people like yourself who've been successful beyond many people's wildest imagination. If there's one myth that you could debunk about the entrepreneurial journey, what would it be? That you should work 20 hours a day and sleep under your desk. Do the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. Quantify your sleep. Engineer your life to have as near perfect health as possible and to value among highest among all things, clarity of judgment. Very well said. Any questions you wish I had asked you that I missed? You asked that question of, do I have the biochemical configuration of optimism as it relates to the future? And I think the most relevant question for intelligent life on planet Earth is what shared conscious experience do we aspire to have? Hmm. Being human right now, living in society is brutal. We all feel it the stress and the demands and our minds are our own worst enemies. We have difficulties getting along. We fight quite a bit. We have a hard time understanding each other's opinions. Nation states are jockeying for power and we're always at risk and threat. We're primitive. We're a primitive species. We're a primitive form of intelligence. How can we imagine rising above our primitive selves and mustering the imagination that we aspire to a shared consciousness, not even one we know, 
not even one we could articulate, not even, even saying the words we could use would fall short of capturing the essence. But we're all in this together. Where's the shared aspiration of that? Why aren't we all talking about that? It's relevant because we have the technology to go after it. It's not a mindless exercise. It's not a futile experience. We actually can go after these things. And it is not an active conversation. And I understand why. There's a lot of, pre- there's a lot of pressing things on our day-to-day basis. And we're all very busy with the things immediately in front of our face. And I also realized that I'm coming from a privileged position. And so it's, it, other people have very real daily responsibilities that I do not have. And so I'm in this fortunate position. I get to think about it. Also, everyone is fueled by hoping that something better in the future is going to exist. That's a, a commonality we all share. But I think it's the most significant opportunity we have right now to look up and start to explore what kinds of questions we want to ask and how might we start walking down that path. Yeah, that's the key thing. How how do we get from here to there? Okay. Well, thank you, Brian, for taking time to chat and recording this podcast. Thank you for having me. And for all of the wonderful things that you and your colleagues have contributed to my life. Oh, well, of course, and hope to be able to contribute more. But it's very exciting, everything that you've done. It's hard to believe, actually. (laughs) And so intentional. I think so few people do get to, you know feel like they're pursuing their life stream. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Thank you, Star. Yeah, of course. All right, that is it for this episode. If you could do me a huge favor really quick, please go to your favorite podcasting app, often Apple Podcasts, and rate and review our show. This gets the show recommended to more folks, and it also helps us get bigger and better guests for you to listen to. Take care. <laughs>